Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. You have a band, good or bad. It's a great band, it's a bad band, it's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what, there's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we are going to look at the legacy of one of America's most vital independent record labels, Touch and Go, celebrating its 25th year. After forming in the basement of a Toledo suburb in 1981, Touch and Go has literally risen above ground to become one of the most important labels in the world. We're going to talk to some of the artists on the label. We're going to talk to the owner of the label himself, Corey Russ. Rare for him to talk to anybody. Indeed it is. It's a bit of a coup. Plus, we have reviews of the new albums by Yola Tango, the uh, long-running Hoboken, New Jersey trio. I believe it's their 13th studio album. Plus, the much-anticipated major label debut by Lupe Fiasco, yet another protege of Kanye West and uh, making hip-hop history with a single about skateboarding. But first, as always, we've got some news. Yes, the dulcet sounds of Chris Isaac. That was Wicked Game. Uh, notable as as probably one of the most memorable videos of all time. Chris and that model. <laughs> and the uh, sand. Cavorting. The beach. In the sand. <laughs> Why are we talking about a video on our radio show? Well, Warner Music has just made history by uh, agreeing to make its library, vast library of music videos, including that one and so many others, available to YouTube, which of course is the website that everybody is buzzing about now. The major labels, as always, some of them are paranoid about YouTube. This idea that you can go onto your computer and download pretty much any video clip from mm-hmm. some silly home movie to actual music videos, portions of TV shows. Universal Music only last week was threatening to sue YouTube for copyright violations and uh, was claiming that it was owed tens of millions of dollars because the site has posted any number of Universal Music videos without the company's permission. Now Warner's, I think that they're being visionary and recognizing this as a great promotion tool and making their entire catalog of all their artists and all the videos available to YouTube. It's not as good a deal as it sounds on the surface, however. YouTube is, at the moment, sort of what Napster was almost 10 years ago now. You know, this great, free wonderland of cool clips that you can download and watch for free. But the plan (laughs) is to make it uh, eventually uh, pay. I mean, there are plans to put a lot more advertising on there, which Mm -hmm. will pay for this. And they're claiming they are also going to be paying royalties to the artists. The deal that Warners is striking with YouTube is going to coincide with a rollout of a new filtering technology, which uh, will not only monitor all the the plays of Warner Music videos so that the artists, the artists, quote unquote, really the record company Mm -hmm. will get paid that money, but also they're going to prohibit other artists from using 
any Warner's copyrighted material and doing their own thing. Because a lot of what people are doing, as they did with the mashup scene, where right. you take two songs together and you put it together, people are taking video images and making new video art. Right. I think what's going to happen is this is going to be make YouTube rather square and corporate, and the video yeah. underground will just find a new site to pass yeah, along absolutely. those fun clips. I, I think uh, rather than being a groundbreaking historical moment for uh, opening up the Internet, I think it's actually the first step in YouTube's demise. You know, they just they sucked all the creativity right out of it, I think, as far as doing this. All right. We did this because Touch and Go is the best record label ever on the planet. And when they, when they talk about when history talks about rock music, it has a tendency to skip from the Sex Pistols to Nirvana. And something started in the 1980s, and you're seeing the evidence of it all around you. There's 7,000 of you motherfuckers out there that know what I'm talking about. Touch and Go is the best thing to happen to music in my lifetime. That's as much as I'm going to get. To the one true God above... Here is my prayer Not the first you've heard But the first I wrote Not the first, but the others Steve Albini, Waxing Rhapsodic. That is his band uh, Shellac that you just heard. Prior to that, Steve Albini addressing the touch-and-go 25th anniversary celebration at the Hideout Block Party a few weeks ago uh, in Chicago a three-day festival with 25 bands associated with the Touch and Go label, attracting 19,000 fans from around the world to sell out this festival and to basically celebrate the legacy of one of the most important independent record labels in America. Albini was exactly right. There is this notion that the underground sort of disappeared, just got written out of the history books between the rise of punk rock in the late 70s and the emergence of the alternative rock scene with Nirvana in the early 90s. Well, when you look at the legacy of Touch and Go, you realize just how much great music was being made. You know, Bruce Springsteen and Michael Jackson and uh, Lionel Richie were making these blockbuster albums in the 80s. To me, the most vital music in the world was being made in this American underground scene that and, was and created gets, by labels like Touch and Go. It gets overlooked, and Albini was the perfect person to make that point because uh, while his initial band, Big Black, did not sell a lot of records, the influence has gone on and on. So, you know, we want to look at this world of indie rock, in particular the Touch and Go label. The music that Touch and Go has put out, uh, some of it's actually sold pretty well, but even the stuff that didn't went on to influence many, many things in the mainstream, and it's an important part of the story of, of that underground music scene between the Sex Pistols and Nirvana and into the present that doesn't get told enough. Absolutely, and I think we need to mention not only uh, Touch and Go, but the other independent labels. It's sort of a merged to sort of nurture the scene. It's important to note that a band like Big Black could never have been signed to a major label as constituted in 1982. They just would never have paid attention to a band like that. A band like uh, Black Flag that was championed by a Southern California independent label, SST. A band like Husker Du that was uh, signed by uh, SST. The replacement starting out on Twin Tone in, in, in Minneapolis. I mean, these were small independent labels that were basically providing an outlet for music that could not have been released on major labels at that time. Well, it's interesting because we tend to forget that all of the most innovative albums of the punk era, whether you're talking about the Sex Pistols, Nevermind the Bullocks, or the early Ramones records, all happened on the major labels. 
and it didn't sell. It actually took well more than a decade for the Sex Pistols, never mind the Bullocks, to actually go platinum, to sell a million copies. Mm -hmm. So once punk didn't happen, all the major labels turned their back on it, which you had all of these artists in England and in America who were influenced by that notion that I don't need to go to music school and have a tremendous amount of technical know-how in order to say something interesting with my music. They were inspired by the punk explosion. They wanted to make records, and they began doing it on their own, DIY. Yeah, it was the idea of creating art on a budget. I mean, the first big black record was basically recorded in Steve Albini's dormitory room in, at Northwestern University. I mean, you had Corey Rusk basically creating touch-and-go in the basement of his grandmother's house in suburban Toledo. That's where he held the recording sessions for those early punk records that he was putting out mm-hmm. on the touch-and-go label, eventually moving the label to Detroit and then finally settling in Chicago in the mid-'80s. But the idea was that there was not a lot of money involved. You weren't going to get radio airplay, but you were going to put out music anyway because this is the way you wanted to communicate with the world. You created your own touring circuit. You, in some cases, created your own album art. You, you stuffed the albums into the sleeves after you created those album covers, and then, then you went around the country in a van right. uh, or, or a car and, and toured the country. Played the most godforsaken, unfortunate dives <laughs> in well, a, on the American scene and yet created an audience for yourself. Exactly. People made their own scene. We're not romanticizing this because certainly the Wild West spirit that, that is, is kind of going on on the internet today makes it even easier. But think about this for just a minute, kids. How hard it was to tour in the days before cell phones and in the days before email. Much more difficult 25 years ago when, uh, when Corey Rusk was forming the Touch and Go label. Well, the reason, one of the reasons we're looking at Touch and Go, besides this incredible catalog of some four 400 albums in the last 25 years is uh, it's one of the only survivors. In that 80s scene, you had labels like Twin Tone out of Minneapolis that was putting out the replacements records, Homestead out of New York that uh, put out the initial big black records, as well as Sonic Youth and many other bands. Uh, they're both gone. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, not only are they gone, but uh, the artists who recorded for them never got paid. Now, there is this notion that has, has been promulgated since that, you know, indie equals ethical and major label equals crooks. Right. We're not going to disagree with the second half of that statement. <laughs> but in many cases, indie labels weren't any better at ever paying the artists mm-hmm. than, than the majors. You know, you had, you had IRS Records was putting out the early uh, REM records, as well as the Go-Go's. All those bands would eventually leave and go to major labels, or in some cases would break up, like the replacements, after a bad stint at a major label. And many of these labels have fallen by the wayside. I guess the only survivors are SST, which is barely doing a fraction of what it had done in the 80s at Discord. Discord in Washington, D.C. Out of Washington, D.C. Right. But but Touch & Go has the rep of being the most honest label in a business notorious for its wicked ways. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Corey Russ, you know, a unique idea. Let's split the profits down the middle with the artist. Most artists will barely get 10% of every record they sell. Uh, and, and also extraordinary for keeping almost all of its catalog in print. That's also very, very rare. It, it's a remarkable story. Corey Rusk has basically survived on a handshake deal with almost every artist he has ever recorded, and yet he had his best year ever last year. The record company is crying poor, saying the Internet is destroying my business. Touch and Go continues 
to make money and do very well, that back catalog that you mentioned, those 400 records continue to sell. And that's part of the part of the legacy here. They have created a legacy for themselves and a business model that I think is really kind of the, the future of the record industry more so than what the, uh, the major labels are doing right now. Uh, I think the best way to get a little deeper into the Touch and Go story is to play some of this music. Exactly. In a moment, you'll hear our conversation with the founder of Touch and Go Records, Corey Rusk. But first, let's hear some of the bands that he has brought to the label and that have made the Touch and Go name over the last 25 years. Hi, Bob. Hi there. of the many bands on Touch and Go Records compiled by Matt Fingerspiegel. For a full list of everybody in that montage, you can go to soundopinions.org. We had a chance to talk to Corey Rusk. Greg Kotz sat down with him backstage at the Hideout Block Party a few weeks ago in Chicago. Essentially a uh, three-day, weekend-long, 25-band look at Corey Rusk's life because his life is Touch and Go Records. I saw you yesterday uh, at uh, Scratch Acid in the front row. You were like a 15-year-old fan, <laughs> snapping pictures. It's got to be sort of surreal, sort of seeing the bands in your life, all on stage on one weekend. What has been the feeling experiencing that? Uh, I can't even describe it. It is surreal. Surreal is definitely a good word. Seeing bands from Negative Approach, who first recorded for us in 1981, all the way up through shellac playing new material that's going to come out on their next album early next year and everything in between just all these bands that got back together just to play this that i just keep thinking am i just delusional is this just because i wanted <laughs> to see it so bad that i think they're great but i've talked to tons of other people who were all like no they were really great yeah and i mean they certainly were to me i i ran from stage to stage and and watched everybody from the photo pit and and had one of the best days of my life you uh obviously have an affection for these bands that's sort of beyond a, a business partnership and that's probably one of the reasons you know you had a dozen of these bands reuniting for one night only kind of you know <laughs> a purpose um 
how is it that you're able to sort of withstand, I mean, because obviously you're running a business and it's almost like, I'm sure in the early days it was almost a week-to-week -week proposition. Are we going to be able to keep functioning? How under those conditions are you able to sort of stave off being a jaded business guy and remain <laughs> a fan in the midst of all that? Because I think that's one of the issues in front of the record industry today is that you have a lot of corporate people running the record industry and they're worried about their bottom lines and they're not so much worried about the art. It seems like you've been able to keep the music at the forefront. Yeah, I, I sometimes wonder how that's worked too because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, I definitely couldn't do it if it was just about the business and, and I didn't really care. Uh, so really, I, th I think it's that I do love these bands and, and, and I do consider them friends and I love their music and that is really what keeps me going and then that's what it gives me the drive to find ways to actually make it work so that we stay in business so that we can keep being involved with them. But if you went to a business school right now, a business college, the first thing they would tell you, you never mix friendship <laughs> with business. It's, it's the worst thing you could possibly do. Right. And, and you know, we're obviously just an exception to the rule. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess we're proof that you can do that. You know, I'll only work with bands if I think that we can be friends. And, and if we've talked enough together that they understand who we are and how we do things and what we're going to do for them. And we understand who they are and feel like uh, what they're looking for is a good fit for what we're doing. And in the end, if, if they end up feeling like we've helped them learn how to cope with being in the music business in a way that they feel good about, that makes me really happy because you know, they're, they're friends. I, I want things to go well for them and I want them to feel good about what they're doing. And it's worked for us way better than it's worked against us. So whatever. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of vitality in the underground in the 80s that the major labels were obviously ignoring. And every city seemed to have those kind of scenes. Are the bands today going to be able to are people going to want to hear what they have to say 25 years from now, the way they have many of the bands <laughs> on your label? Um, I'm just curious where you, where you think the underground is at today in terms of the, the vitality of rock music. Uh, I mean, it's certainly way different than it was. And I think there there are important bands today, and there are bands today that 25 years from now people will want to listen to. But it is very different in that sort of... It is easier to start a band today. It's easier to make your band heard today. There is a certain sort of sense of urgency or pride in doing it yourself against all odds that just can't be there today, like nothing against any of the bands or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's just it's different times than it was then, and it makes it something else. It, it can't be that again, but that doesn't mean that it can't be great. Last thing for it, 25 years from now, 50th anniversary show. Do you see this label? Yeah, well, we, we've already started working on it. We figure we're going to need an exceptional amount of walkers and wheelchairs and so on, so we're trying to book those in advance. <laughs> That's Corey Rusk and Greg Cott chatting a few weeks ago backstage at the Hideout Block Party. When we come back, we are going to hear how Touch and Go Records changed the lives and careers of many of the artists themselves, and we'll have our favorite music from the label's history on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. We are continuing our discussion about Touch and Go Records on the occasion of its 25th anniversary, a real milestone for any indie label. We talked to some of the artists on Touch and Go backstage at this uh, block party in Chicago a couple of weeks ago. You are going to hear some comments from Scott McLeod of Girls Against Boys, Steve Albini, the man, the myth, the legend, Janet Weiss of Quasi, can't say of Sleater Kinney anymore, they are no more, Ted Leo of The Pharmacist's Fame, <laughs> and uh, David Yao, the irascible David Yao of Jesus Lizard and Scratch Acid. My name is Scott McLeod, I'm the singer and guitar player of Girls Against Boys. With Touch and Go, it, I mean, it is a business, you know, of course, like a major label is a business, but I think that the, the focus is, is more on development in a way, and on more longer term relationship. I mean... Corey seems to choose to work with bands that are that he likes the music and it's also a friendly relationship. So there's a real serious, honest idea that the relationship will last a long time, which is a different situation than you're going to have at a major label. And I think that the touch-and-go situation with bands, because they don't spend as much money promoting, because they can market a certain band in a way that still doesn't put touch-and-go too heavily in the red, that the band can then continue to exist. Janet Weiss, drummer for Quasi. Corey's sort of the ideal person that you'd like to deal with in the music. You know, I I don't consider myself in the music industry just because I feel like I fly far enough below the radar, and I think that he does too. Um, You don't have to, like, sell your first child to him. You don't have to, you know, you really just, you deliver on, on your part of the bargain and he delivers on his part of the bargain. You know, to me, my my version of American punk rock, is, you know, is very much shaped by Touch and Go. The thing about the label that I think is one of the most interesting aspects that, that people don't really talk about that much is just how kind of future forward they always seem to be, you know. Um, from very early on in their history, they were putting out records by bands that were completely unlike anything else going on on the planet at that time. I mean, that just blew minds. Um, there have been a few times in the past when people have tried to get us to either scratch ass or the Jesus Lizard to play again, and I'm not interested in doing that. But then when the possibility of helping out this slacker record company, um, it was, it was uh, an exciting opportunity. This whole thing, man, is mind-blowing, heart-exploding, it's great. They're the best, most important record company of all time, and Corey's magnificent. The Capital Experience was about what I expected it to be, because when they signed us, I told Gary, who was running the company, you know, this is not going to work. You're going to be unhappy. We're not going to sell any more records than we already do. And he's going, no, 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 it's going to be great, and all this. And thank God, after two records, they went, you know, yeah, okay, you can go home. Touch and Go was such a blast and so easy and do whatever you want, however you want to, and we'll put it out. I, it's, not, it's not like it was a primer being something that would be getting you ready for capital or major label. It didn't, no, I think it takes you further from being ready. I'm Steve Albini. I was in the band Big Black and Rape Man, and I'm in the band Shellac. There are very few record labels that would say to a band we will pay for you to make any kind of record you want to make 
and then whatever kind of record you want to make, we will make it available in perpetuity so that your audience, whoever that is that gets what you do, will be able to buy it for all eternity. For small, marginal bands, the changes in technology that made recording and distribution of music easier have been an incredible boon. But during the period that Touch & Go was getting started, a record label like Touch & Go, willing to make the big investments that were necessary to make records at the time, was remarkable. It may not be the case that there will ever be a record label like Touch & Go that makes things possible for bands if only because the obstacles that were in place in the 70s and 80s are no longer in place. It may be the case that the era of the record labels of substance is coming to a close. If that's the case, I'm thrilled that I got to be associated with Touch and Go, which was by far the best of the bunch. Their robot planes were no match for our music. You know, we've been talking a lot about this label, Jim. I think it's time that we get down to playing some music that moved us as fans uh, who grew up during this era, followed these bands around, uh, got the releases when they came out, saw the shows. In a lot of ways, uh, they inspired a generation of young people to form bands, and in the cases of you and I, to be writers, to be music writers. Well, yeah, let's not forget that Touch and Go actually was a fanzine yes. before it was a record label. A do-it-yourself homemade magazine, eight and a half by 11 Xerox <laughs> sheet thing that was uh, handed out at rock clubs. So it all comes back to being a fan, and in some cases writing about this music. So uh, you're going to go first. You're going to play a song that you think epitomizes Touch and Go. Well, you know, to an extent, I will. Although I think when people think of Touch and Go, those who did sort of follow the label, they associated with a certain kind of sound. And there were some uh, rather indelicate terms used to describe the touch-and-go sound, most notably by the longtime Village Voice critic Robert Christgau. It started with pig, and it was yes. hyphenated, and it involved an act of copulation yes. with, a, uh, with a swine. It was not a pretty mental picture that no. he painted of this sound. And to an extent, it was true with bands like the Butthole Surfers and Big Black. Scratch in, in Acid. The, in Scratch Acid in the 80s, you did have this sort of very violent sound that Killdozer. Made... You know, you could call your band Killdozer. Right. You know what you're getting, you know? But it, but it was multidimensional as well. A lot of a lot of bands sort of took that violence, took it to an extreme, and they said, wow, we're, we're nasty, we're angry, we're scary. But yeah. Corey Russ's taste ran a lot wider than those noise bands. As much as he loved them, he created another niche out there for these quieter bands, these bands that were a little more soft-spoken, created beautiful melodies, and uh, that's the side that I'm going to gravitate toward. One of the bands that played at the uh, Touch and Go 25th anniversary celebration, and I was particularly anticipating their performance because they rarely play anymore, is a quartet that uh, ended up in Chicago, although originally formed on the East Coast uh, in the North Carolina and West Virginia area, the home area of Sue Young Park, the Korean lead singer of the band and songwriter in the band, Seam put out their first record on the Homestead label. When that label imploded, they signed to Touch and Go, moved to Chicago, and began recording with Brad Wood, who's perhaps best known for recording Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville in the early 90s. The album that I'm going to gravitate to is The Problem With Me. Back then, uh, Seam was essentially a trio, bass, drums, and guitar. Sue Young Park, the, the songwriter and the guitarist in the band, had a relationship with the bassist, Lexi Mitchell, at the time. 
as beautiful as the problem with me is, this record is very much a soul-searching record, and, and it talks a lot about a relationship winding down. And you have to wonder whether Sue Young Part was singing about his relationship with Lexi Mitchell at the time. The band ended up making several more records for Touch and Go, but none as strong and as resonant as The Problem With Me. The song I want to play, Stage 2000, I think illustrates uh, perfectly that sound, that they had beautiful washes of guitar, in some ways sort of um, merging that My Bloody Valentine guitar wash with wonderful melodies, and at the same time, uh, a really punchy rhythm section. When you have Brad Wood, drummer, uh, recording your music, you're going to have a little bit of a bottom there as well. Seam really stands out in the Touch and Go catalog for me. The problem with me is the album, and Stage 2000 is the song on Sound Opinions.
Stage 2000, a song by Seam, the late lamented Seam, although you never know, they may be coming back. Uh, I'm going to play, it's sort of obvious, uh, and in a way it's cheating uh, a bit, because uh, the album Atomizer came out in 1985. It is what I believe is Big Black's best record. Did not initially come out on Touch and Go. Came out on Homestead Records, as Seam early recorded for Homestead. Big Black, in the midst of its career, or towards the end of its career, left Homestead and went to Touch and Go. Put out its final records there. Albini's next band, the uh, controversially titled Rape Man, recorded for Touch and Go, as as does his current group, Shellac. But Touch and Go in the early 90s reissued the entire big black catalog. And so Atomizer, their 85 masterpiece, I believe, is still available along with all the other big black records on Touch and Go. And I think the reason we have to play an Albini song is that, that nobody has ever been associated with Touch and Go as a personality as closely as Albini. Everybody says of Steve Albini, you love him or you hate him. He is a, a controversial, polarizing figure but a brilliant one, and uh, never so good as in Big Black. He was a kid from Montana who Mm -hmm. fell in love with punk rock, came to Chicago, or Evanston properly, to go to journalism school at Northwestern. That's an important fact because I think that Big Black's lyrics were so brilliant because they uh, trafficked in a particular kind of tabloid journalistic sensationalism. A song like Cables is about kids sneaking into the slaughterhouse to help kill the calves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jordan, Minnesota was about a ring of alleged pedophiles. You know, what he was doing was basically this kind of journalistic reportage of often uh, very disturbing subjects. A lot of people missed the humor and also people would accuse him of glorifying these things even though he was really just reporting. You look at the name Big Black, the Latin roots of Albini mean little white mm-hmm. so he was he was actually saying in the name of the band this is my alter ego right. this is all the bad things in life that i'm going to play on stage and this little skinny guy would get on stage with santiago durango uh the other guitarist and uh david riley who plays on atomizer bass two guitars and a drum machine called roland <laughs> so uh even though this record didn't initially come out on touch and go i think it epitomizes that noise rock sound it's hard to imagine that industrial thrash sound of a nine inch nails or a marilyn manson without these guys of a lot of the noise rock that followed and that continues in the underground today nirvana one of the reasons they came to albini along with his other production work is the fact that he'd been in this band and i think kerosene is a perfect example of what they do you know those two guitars that albini would memorably describe as guitar sking and guitar grr, right? <laughs> that was in the liner notes. That's how they were credited. And a melody, a great melody, and a really twisted lyric about a bored arsonist. It's Saturday night in Nowheresville, America, maybe his hometown in Montana. There's nothing to do, so I'm going to set fires. <laughs>
we come to die in this town Lived here my whole life Never anything to do in this town Lived here my whole life Never anything to do in this town Lived here my whole life Probably learn to die in this town Live here my whole life Nothing to do, sit around at home Sit around at home, stare at the walls Stare at each other, wait till we die Stare at each other, wait till we die Probably come to die in this town Live here my whole life There's kerosene around That was Kerosene from Big Black, one of uh, many fine bands on the Touch and Go label. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to be right back with reviews of the new albums from Lupe Fiasco and Yola Tango.
when he was six, didn't know any tricks. Matter of fact, first time he got on it, he slipped, landed on his hip and busted his lip. For a week, he had to talk with a list like this. Now we can end the story right here, but Shorty didn't quit. It was something in the air. Yeah, he said it was something so appealing. He couldn't fight the feeling, something about it. He knew he couldn't doubt it, couldn't understand it. Branded since the first kick flip, he landed. Uh, labeled a misfit, abandoned. Cocoon, cocoon, cocoon. His neighbors couldn't stand it, so he was banished to the park. Started in the morning, one stopped after dark. Yeah, when they said it's getting late in here. So I'm sorry, young man, there's no skating here. So we kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, coast. And away he rolled, just a rebel to the world with no place to go. And so we kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, coast. So come and skate with me, just a rebel looking for a place to be. So let's kick and push. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You're listening to Lupe Fiasco, the single Kick Push that has been out for several months now from his new record, Food and Liquor. The debut album from Lupe Fiasco, a.k.a. Wasalu Mohamed Jaco, a West Side native of Chicago who has been working on this album for about six years on his third record label, it's been a long, strange path for this 24-year-old rap star. And I say rap star because he is well-known within rap circles in America. Um, Kanye West has worked with him. Pharrell Williams of the Neptunes has worked with him. Jay-Z has mentored him and is co-executive producer on this new record. Many, many people have been talking about Lupe Fiasco for years and looking forward to this record. And it's kind of a shame that it's taken so long for the darn thing to finally get here. Well, yeah, and such a wait between that single, which was a modest hit. Yes. I think it should have been a bigger hit. I mean, frankly, I think it does for skateboarding <laughs> what the Beach Boys did for surfing. I think you get some indication there, Jim, of why people like Jay-Z and Kanye West and Pharrell Williams have been interested in this guy for years because there is a fresh sound there, a fresh approach to subject matter that isn't normally talked about in hip-hop songs. And listen to the sample. It's a Filipino jazz band. I mean, mm -hmm. somebody was digging pretty deep, and the somebody happens to be one of the producers that Lupe Fiasco has been working with for the last few years. It's not some big-name guy. He's working with these two guys, Soundtrack and Prolific, who are Chicago-based producers who really haven't done much of note before this. So I think what we have here is a new voice in the hip-hop spectrum with a new sound created by these producers who are really kind of unknowns. And it is kind of remarkable that this record has sort of been overseen by this hip-hop royalty. And while you hear Pharrell Williams on this record, and Jay-Z executive produced it and does do a guest rap on the record, it's primarily this guy with his own sound team creating this much-buzzed-about new record, Food and Liquor. Here's a song that, like Kick Push, is veering from the traditional subject matter that consumes a lot of mainstream hip-hop. It's a song called Daydreamin'. It features neo-soul singer Jill Scott from Lupe Fiasco on Sound Opinions. Daydream, daydream. I fell asleep beneath the flowers. I fell asleep beneath the flowers. For a couple of hours. For a couple of hours. On a beautiful day. On a beautiful day. Daydreams grow, dreams. I dream of you amid the flowers. I dream of you amid the flowers. For a couple of hours. For a couple of hours. Such a beautiful day. 
It's a spy from behind my giant robot's eyes. I keep him happy 'cause the mic fall out if he cries. Scared of heights, so I might pass out if he flies. Keep him on autopilot 'cause I can't drive. Room enough for one. I tell my homies they can't ride unless we're sitting on the shoulders, but that's way too high. Let's try not to step on the children. The news cameras filming this walking project building. Now there's holes selling holes like right around the toes and the crackheads beg at about the lower leg. There's crooked police that's stationed at the knees and they do drive-bys like up and down the thighs. And there's a car chase going on at the waist. Keep a vest on my chest. I'm sitting in my room as I'm looking out the face. Something to write about. I still got some damage from fighting the White House. Just a dream. That's Daydreamin' by Lupe Fiasco from his debut album Food and Liquor with guest Jill Scott. Greg, you mentioned departing from the gangster mainstream of hip-hop. Lupe's doing that in a very dramatic way, and in a number of ways. I mean, he is, in some ways, the hip-hop Urkel. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he is proud to be a nerd. He loves Star Wars. He loves comic books. He loves science fiction. He's got the silliest, worst album cover possibly in the history of hip-hop, which is really saying something. He's floating <laughs> out there in the cosmos. But he's proud of all these things. However, it would be way easy to dismiss him as a novelty, and it would be completely wrong, because he is also the uh, son of a Black Panther activist. He is a committed Muslim, very serious about religion. Food and Liquor, the title of the album, refers to the fact that there's a corner store, you know, as he says, basically from the loop all the way to the very end of Chicago, all the way to Indiana. Every corner has a food and liquor. He is he's actually doesn't drink, and he's against drugs, and he hates the idea of denigrating women. So... Like Common, uh, another Chicago rapper, you know, which, who we've had on the show, he's out there with a very positive message, although he has a lot of humor in there. He can throw in references, uh, you know, I'm not Cornel West, I'm, I'm Cornel West Side, he says at <laughs> one point. He's very adept at using his voice as a musical instrument in the chorus of Kick Push when he goes Kick Push Coast. You know, mm-hmm. he, he's always using his voice to kind of bring you into the sound of, of what he's saying as well as the meaning. The samples are brilliant. A lot of his rhymes are really spot on. I mean, he, he doesn't necessarily have the most arresting voice, but the content is so great you can't help but get sucked in. On our rating scale of buy it, burn it, trash it, it's a buy it record. Yeah, I think it's definitely one of the uh, most significant hip-hop releases of the year. I do like the variety on this record. I think melody is at the core of a lot of these songs. You can tell this kid has been listening to a lot of music. He says he was steeped in, you know, he's trained in jazz and classical music before he ever began to appreciate hip-hop. And in fact, there's a song where he talks about exactly that. Now I ain't trying to be the greatest. I used to hate hip-hop. Yep, because the women degraded But too short made me laugh Like a hypocrite, I played it A hypocrite, I stated Though I only recited half Omitting the word bitch Cursing, I wouldn't say it Me and dog couldn't relate Till a bitch I dated Forgive my favorite word For hers and hers alike But I learned it from a song I heard and sort of liked He's basically saying that at one point I did not like hip-hop because of what it was talking about, how it denigrated women and how it all had to be about guns and gang-banging and drug dealing. And I, wasn't, I didn't want to be a part of that because it was around me my entire life. I was able to sort of grow up on the West Side, and I had parents who were involved in my life, and they kept me away 
from a lot of that stuff. But nonetheless, I was very aware of that stuff, and I didn't want to be selling that commercially. I didn't want that to be a part of my my game. And the fact that he does talk openly about wrestling with these issues, wrestling with his religion, wrestling with his relationship. He's the guy with the sweaty palms going up to ask the girl out on a date. He's not the player in the club wearing the bling, you know, yeah. walking up to every girl he's and figuring he's going to walk I'm home with you, those the guys. Man is yeah. Urkel. So, you know, it's a very unique personality that he's created, especially in hip-hop, and he presents it in a way that is very smooth. I mean, you can hear the jazz influences. You can hear the melodies coursing through this music. If you don't think you like hip-hop, give this record a try, because I think you're going to be surprised at the musicality of this record. Much in the same way that Kanye West is sort of blowing out the boundaries of what hip-hop can be, I think Lupe Fiasco is doing very much the same here. If there is one mistake on this record it is the closing track i wish he had not done the outro 12 minutes of thank yous the only way this is better than what christina aguilera was doing on her record is that she had the fans thanking her this is lupe fiasco is in fact thanking you know this is the thank you list that should have been in the liner notes i don't understand why he tagged 12 minutes of this this is probably the most dreaded recurring thing in in 2006 this is a bad trend we gotta kill this right away but otherwise i think we've got to buy it record here absolutely so double buy it for lupe fiasco's debut album food and liquor let's shift gears and coast and go to hoboken huh That is a little bit of a 10-plus-minute noise guitar workout called Pass the Hatchet, I Think I'm Good Kind, from the 13th <laughs> album by Hoboken, New Jersey's beloved trio, Yo La Tango. The name of the album, I Am Not Afraid of You, Ellipses. That's what it says on the spine of the CD. Mm-hmm. The, the full title, uh, I Am Not Afraid of You, and I Will Beat Your... You know, bottom. <laughs> yes. I think it's one of the words we can't say. Yola Tango's always had a great way with naming things. I'm sure there's a great story. Ira Kaplan, the guitarist, primary vocalist, and main songwriter, has yet to tell the story. The name itself, Yola Tango, Greg, you would know this because you care about sports and I don't. But I, I, there was a Mets infielder at some point who knew no English except the phrase, I got it, when he would catch the ball. Yeah. Yola Tango. Yola Tango I, is, I got it. is I got it in Spanish. Right. Yeah. And in, so uh, baseball. famous baseball fans as well as indie rockers who are now in their second decade. I saw the very first Yola Tango show wow. a million years ago at Maxwell's in Hoboken, New and Jersey. how were they? They were awful. They were awful. <laughs> you know, in those days, in those very first days, Greg, there were, there were different people rounding out the band, but it was always the core duo of Ira Kaplan on vocals and guitar and his wife, Georgia Hubley, on drums and vocals. James McNew, I guess, has been around more than 10 years at this point. He's yeah. still the new guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, rounding out the group. And, and he's just, a vital contributor. Ira Kaplan has a, a deeper and bigger record collection than almost anybody I know besides you. <laughs> and he's got very good taste in plundering it. Throughout the whole career of Yola Tango, all of these 13 albums, they have at different times emulated different sounds and brought different things into the mix. A little bit of that can or noi German art rock or alternately something completely different, like Peter Stamfel and the Bottle Caps and the Early Fugs or Holy Modal Rounders kind of tuneful folk rock. They've made albums at different times 
times that have been consistently kind of examining one sound, whether it was all acoustic or whether it was all noise rock. And the last couple of albums have been pretty much of a piece. This new one, I Am Not Afraid of You, Ellipses, goes back to the earlier days of Yola Tango, where it's a stylistic hodgepodge. Fifteen tracks, they're all over the map. We came in with one of the guitar noise songs, and the album ends with another called The Story of Yola Tango. Both of these ten-minute-plus tracks where it's all just about the drone and the noise and the chaos. But there are also different tracks that, that are very quiet and ballady and acoustic, and there's some horns on this track. So it's an old-style... I know lots of cool music. I'm going to reference all of it. Yola Tango doing what Ira Kaplan loves best, kind of mining the history of rock and roll. Let's hear something from the middle of the album. This is kind of the classic garage rock Farfisa feel. I should have known better by Yola Tango on Sound Opinions. I should have known better from Yola Tango, their new record, I Am Not Afraid of You, dot, dot, dot. Jim, you are absolutely correct. They have made a couple of records in their recent past that sort of began to pigeonhole them as a, you know, they're entering their midlife and they're mellowing out. They're starting to make the quiet ballad-heavy records. Uh, Summer Sun, 2003, that was that effort. Yes, and then Nothing Turned Itself Inside Out in 2000. It sounded like, okay, Yola Tango's getting a little older, they're mellowing out, they don't really want to rock anymore. They come back with a vengeance by opening this record with that 10-minute guitar blowout. Okay, I was playing the guitar again, all is well with the world. Throwing down the gauntlet. And I see this as a sort of a throwback to their uh, 1997 album, which I think is one of their very best. I can hear the heart beating as one, where they were really throwing that smorgasbord at you. Every track has a different feel. They go from this full-on guitar meltdown on the new record to this sort of jaunty piano-driven pop song, followed by a sweet Georgia Hubbly ballad with violin on it, and then they get into a falsetto Ira vocal with sort of a Latin feel underneath it, a lo-fi chamber pop song, sort of a Birdsian psychedelic song after that. So you get the idea. They are jumping all over the map on this record. I mean, who knew 20 years into the career that Ira could do a falsetto? No. Mr. Tough, what a weird song. Hey, Mr. Tough. experimenting with this a little bit in the last couple of years, and and I have to say it's kind of weirdly affecting. I mean, like everything else this band does, even when they're at their most violent, 
there's sort of a warmth and a charm to it. There's a, sort of a homemade feel to everything they do that makes them sort of endearing. They're, they're not particularly a threatening band. They feel like they could be your best friends. Uh, and, you know, you could sit up there on stage and have a nice warm glass of milk listening to these guys. Well, except for the fact know? that you can talk to Ira and Georgia for <laughs> two hours and get ten words out of them. Yeah, there right. That kind of anti-social. They're in their own world. Yes. And their own world happens to be a basement filled with 50,000 records. Exactly. And they know the groove of every one of them. And they're bringing all those influences to bear on this record once again. I like it when they're in this sort of kaleidoscopic, we're going to show you some of the breadth of the music that we like to listen to. And I think they're, they've returned to form here. I, I see them having a, a brilliant three-album run in the middle of the 90s with that painful record, followed by Electropura, followed by I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One. Every one of those records a must-own. And while this one is not quite in the category of those three records in terms of just being a must-own, that's where you need to start your Yola Tango collection, it's very close, and I'm going to give it a buy-it. Yeah, I think it's a buy-it record. I certainly understand why some people denigrate them, because I don't know if there's ever been a completely original idea on Yola Tango uh, Mm -hmm. in in its entire catalog. On the other hand, what's original in rock and roll? It's all been done, and if you're going to steal, you might as well steal from something deep, as Ira does, instead of rewriting, you know, uh, You Really Got Me for the 90 millionth time. Right. Ira's much more likely to rewrite a deep, deep song from Village Green Preservation (laughs) Society rather than the kinks You Really Got Me. They're the epitome of good taste. There's never a bad sound. There's never a bad song, really. There's songs that you may not like as much as others. I do think it's a return to form. I think you're right on, and uh, I'm not afraid to buy this record. Jim, we are both in the buy-it mode. We are very generous this week. We're loving the records we're hearing. For Yola Tango, we both say buy it for I Am Not Afraid of You, dot, dot, dot. And uh, we will be back with, of course, more record reviews. It is that time of year. Lots of new releases coming out. We're going to have more record reviews for you next week as well. Once again, donning our stethoscopes and our white doctor's garbs. The rock doctors will be in the house helping another needy patient to discover new music that they need in their lives. Absolutely. we got some thank yous to say on the way out. Mr. Cott, first and foremost, I suppose, to all the folks who talked to us out at the Hideout Touch and Go celebration. Tori Malatia of the South Side is our executive producer. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Fingerspiegel is our producer. Associate producers are Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. We get some legal help from Dino Armiros, some technical assistance from Joe Dassault, and Jim Russell is our man at American Public Media. We had some fun partying with him in Philadelphia. <laughs> uh, him and David Yao should get together. Absolutely. Absolutely. 